Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. David Roberts has spent his career documenting voyages to the most extreme landscapes on Earth. In his new book, Limits of the Known, he reflects on humanities and his own relationship to extreme risk. And he tries to make sense of why so many have committed their lives to the pursuit of adventure. Now, in the wake of his diagnosis with throat cancer, Robert seeks answers with sharp new urgency. He explores his own lifelong commitment to adventuring, as well as cultural contributions of explorers throughout history. And he asks, what motivates the explorers we most admire who are willing to embark on perilous journeys and push the limits of the human body? And what is the future of adventure in a world we have mapped and trodden from end to end? Veteran mountain climber David Roberts is the award-winning author of Alone on the Ice, The Lost World of the Old Ones, Limits of the Known, and... 26 other books about mountaineering, exploration, adventure, and Western history and anthropology. He lives in Massachusetts. David Roberts, a pleasure to welcome you back to Access Utah. Thank you. We appreciate you uh, being with us. Uh, so, fascinating uh, new book, um, very personal as as well. Um, so, you uh, this began, you were uh, reliving uh, uh, an important ascent from your youth, right, up in Alaska? Yeah, I, we had gone, my friend Matt Hale and I had gone up to Alaska to to give a couple of slideshows on the 50th anniversary of what was probably our best climb ever, which was the west face of Mount Huntington back in 1965. So in, 19, in 2015, we went up to Alaska to uh, sort of celebrate this anniversary. And it was on that trip that I discovered this bulge or lump in my, what I thought was a a lymph node in my throat or jaw, and which turned out to be stage four cancer, throat cancer. Yeah, that's, um, and of course, now uh, a completely different uh, journey. How is... Uh how has cancer, um, I guess, changed your view, and what what are the new questions you're answering or asking? <laughs> well, it's changed my view completely about everything. I mean, it's been it's been almost three years now that, that I've survived, and I'm not in remission because it metastasized, and what that means is that there is no remission, but there is. Uh, hope that you can hang on for quite a while even. I'm on immunotherapy now, which is a kind of new miracle. One doesn't say cure, but stabilizing treatment, um, which has sort of put put a, a halt to the cancer. But still, there's so many things I can't do anymore. And what, what, the, what it really... The greatest impact it had on me was to make me realize that all kinds of adventures I'd hoped to pursue, I couldn't do anymore. You know, I still can't hike more than four or five miles and maybe five or six hundred feet of altitude gain. And that's just peanuts compared to what I was used to. Mm. I mean, granted, old age also takes its toll. I'm 74. But, you know, I'd hope to have 20 more years, 15 more years of really active uh, discovery in the wor- in, in the wilderness. Instead, it, it, it thrust me back onto reassessment of what I'd done and also put 
putting it, my own adventures in the context of what much greater adventures than I had done over the centuries and even over millennia. Mm. Um, yeah, so adventure, adventure, uh, is that how you'd phrase it? Adventure, uh, risk, um, exploration? That's been very important to, to you and in, in your personal life and also studying uh, the explorers that went before you. Well, once I decided to try to make a living as a writer, I was naturally drawn to, you know, it's sort of a catch-all phrase, adventure. But since so much of what I'd done for fun, for pleasure, for what, what had driven me was about exploration, discovery, in the physical world, um, that's what I was drawn, driven to write about, and almost all of my writing has been about some, some, uh, some version of that. I want to get into some of the adventurers that you, the explorers that you, that you talk about with with admiration, and you're you're seeking answers to the, these questions, right? Why the why behind uh, people who put themselves at, at risk? Why you know push the limits of the known, as the title of the book? Um, I'd like maybe to skip to the skip to the final chapter. You you talk about and talk about your wife, Sharon. And and how you how you two negotiated as as all married couples do, um, kind of differences in in, in focus. I put myself in uh, kind of the, the shoes of, of your wife there, who she wasn't advent as she's not as adventurous as you. You she did gamely go along with you on on some adventures at least early on. Yeah, I mean Sharon was never a climber, and and the kinds of things I like to do really scared her. So, but I was determined to to share that part of my life with her. So we went along. She went along on a couple of Alaskan expeditions where she didn't have to do the climbing, but she could hang out at base camp and and enjoy the beautiful countryside. And as the only woman on those expeditions, she was sort of always felt out of her element and a little bit scared in Christy Bear country. But um, what I write about in the last chapter is the one expedition that we did way back in 1970 for just the two of us, which was a fairly simple trip, uh, kayaking the length of two big lakes in Alaska in a clepper fall boat, which isn't a real kayak, but it's a collapsible a uh, boat made of canvas and rubber that you can putter around on lakes and, and gentle rivers on, which actually turned into a pretty profound adventure for both of us. And looking back on that in my last chapter, I think it's a it's also an attempt to explore why we have stayed together for now 50 years and and why her support of me in this new crisis caused by cancer has become the most important thing in my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I suppose this, that uh, I really responded to, to to that chapter because I I guess I stand in the place of, of Sharon, and t- and at least in her, I guess, tolerance for risk, which is different from yours, I think. 
Um, and uh, you know, I'm I'm saying along with her, um, this is not normal, right? To to go out and and to seek these these experiences. She would she would always whisper to you. It became kind of a ritual. You know, she'd whisper, "Be careful," right? And, yeah. And and you have a kind of a different perspective. You. You know, you you wanted to test yourself, I guess, and you were you were okay with that. In fact, it was important to you, but you had to negotiate that because she had a different uh, view of this, and she obviously worried. Well, you know, we we had both had numerous friends die climbing or other kinds of adventures, and she was, of course, terrified that that would happen to me. So. I mean, hers is the reasonable position, after all. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, so, uh, what I want to get into is, and, and you, you know, you, you try to bring us in in the book here, and, and of course, throughout your writing, what uh, what is it about about risk that, and you, you say it has to have. You know, if, if if you don't have real risk, then it's just a video game, right? Yeah, well, maybe not a video game, but a game. A, a game, yeah. A sport, maybe. Um, yeah, I think risk is essential, but I don't like the idea of seeking risk for its own sake or thrill-seeking or risk-seeking just to test yourself. But risk is, is necessary to make the game for keeps, for for high stakes. But that doesn't mean that you seek out risk and danger just to get get some sort of a... A, a high or a thrill, you you simply accept it as a component of what of the kinds of the journeys and adventures that you couldn't do without it. Mm. This, this is not just adrenaline rush. There's much more than that. Oh yeah, yeah. In fact, of course, you try to avoid risk every, every at every turn you you can, um, because you know every every single point of risk is, is could not only kill you, but it could also simply end whatever expedition you're on. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you if you lose your kayak in the middle of the lake, you're going to have to call for a rescue. Yeah. Um, so you say that uh, this was always, a, as all marriages are, this was always, uh, you know, understandings and um, but, but you always kept that that love and respect uh, for each other. And now with cancer, I guess that the the home base, the the home that's represented there, becomes even more important. Yeah, I mean, I've I've, I've been almost housebound for big parts of the last three years, and what's been incredible to me is how I mean, Sharon had a flourishing career as a psychoanalyst. And she essentially had to give up that career to take care of me. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure I could have done the same for her. I, I I simply greatly admire what she's done, and and the love she's poured into taking care of me is extraordinary. Mm. I don't think I ever. I know I didn't appreciate her love enough during my healthy years. Mm. In fact, I sometimes felt it as a kind of a constraint or even a a hindrance, you know, a kind of, not a chain, but a, that all those be-carefuls sort of undercut my my 
simplistic urge to just go out there and do something. Hmm. Yeah, you you write that, um, you know, she's worrying about you, and then you're worrying about her worrying about you, and it's right. it, it's kind of a, a bit of a weight on you, but uh, I guess it turns out to be a, a big positive over the years. Well, yeah, I mean, I think... I think, uh, I don't think I could have, I think I probably would have quit adventuring sooner if I hadn't been married to Sharon. Mm. Because at the same time as she was, she wasn't simply a warrior. She never said, will you please give up this nonsense? Will you please stop climbing? She, she, she fully appreciated the glory of it. And even the trips we did together, she, she, she loved the, the what to me was a kind of watered down adventure, and, and we still do. We're still trying to get out and do things that are at least um, exploratory and novel, and even things that haven't been done by others before. Mm. Uh, they're in Massachusetts. No, all over the West, oh, especially okay. all right. Southwest, which is sort of my favorite part of the country, of maybe of the world. Um, just uh, last September, we spent 40 days retracing the route of two Spanish explorers who basically discovered, made the European discovery of the Southwest in 1776, and that's, I'm writing my next book about that. This is a so even, even with the limitations of cancer, we can still go on exploratory journeys. Yeah, this is uh, Dominguez and Escalante, right? Yeah. Oh, that's a that's a that that must be a fascinating journey. I'm I'm really enjoying writing about it, and, and I really feel like what we're doing is something that hasn't been done before, which is a retraced journey, which is at the same time a, a, a critical investigation of what the hell those guys were doing and why. Mm-hmm. Earlier, you you used an interesting word. You you said she she uh, your wife appreciates the glory of it. What what do you mean by by glory? I guess many meanings there. I guess. Well, I think you never have as high a high as you get at certain moments when you overcome the risk and the danger and the hardship and. And, and get somewhere, even as simple as the summit of a peak. And, you know, the, the, certainly the most joyous moments of my life have come from climbing. And also the, the worst moments. Yeah. But Sharon, Sharon appreciates that. Sharon, she fully understands um, that kind of breakthrough moment. And when we could share it together, which for so many years we really couldn't, it's uh, it's all the more important and more powerful. We're talking with David Roberts. His latest book is called Limits of the Known, and in it he reflects on humanity's and his own relationship to risk, to adventure. He tries to make sense of why so many have committed their lives to the pursuit of adventure. Uh, we'll take a break. Uh, more with David Roberts following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. 
David Roberts' new book is called The Limits of the Known. He has uh, spent much of his life in adventure, writing about it uh, eloquently in uh, many books, uh, including um, uh, Alone on the Ice, which many of you have read, I'm sure, uh, The Lost World of the Old Ones. We talked about uh, with David Roberts about that one a couple of years ago, uh, The World of the Anasazi there. And the new book, Limits of the Known, 26 other books about mountaineering, exploration, adventure, Western history, and anthropology. And uh, now with a diagnosis of throat cancer, Robert seeks answers with a sharp new urgency. Explores his own lifelong commitment to adventuring as well as the cultural contributions of explorers throughout history. David Roberts, I want to get into, uh, you you write um, in a pulse-pounding way about uh, several uh, famous adventurers, explorers. I wonder if we could talk a bit about uh, Nansen. Fridjof, is that how you say his first name? Fridjof Nansen yeah. was uh, one of the greatest polar explorers ever, who in 1893 tried to get to the North Pole before anybody had gotten there. And he came up with a, a, a what everybody thought was a crazy idea about how to do it, which is the problem had always been that people trying to to go north ran into the sea ice, and often as not, their ships got frozen in, sometimes for more than a year, so that not only was the, the journey stopped in its tracks, but survival became the issue because of the next summer, you, I mean, you had to winter over in the ice, which is a a truly awful experience, incredibly tedious and and threatening. Uh, but but if the ice didn't free the ship the next summer, you, you were condemned to yet another year in the ice. So Nansen's great idea was to deliberately get frozen, get a ship frozen in the ice, to build a ship that would be would have a very shallow keel so that it would be pushed up like a cork out of a bottle, rest on top of the ice, and he planned to drift with the ice towards the pole, and then when he got as close as he could by frozen ship, take off on skis with one other partner and try to go for the pole on skis. An amazing, amazingly daring plan for 1893. He got to within less than four degrees of the 90 degrees north and set a new record that would last for a decade or so. But he also wrote one of the all-time classic books simply called Farthest North, just a wonderful adventure narrative, expedition narrative, one of the great classic exploratory books ever written. So my chapter about Nansen was an homage to him, but also, you know, I think that there's a there's an illusion that we've we've so far surpassed what anybody was doing 150 years ago, and I want to point out the ways in which Nansen and, and his teammates did things that we couldn't do anymore, like getting frozen into the Arctic Ocean for three years. I don't think anybody could tolerate that today. Hmm. Um, he he does write eloquently. Um, I want to read just a couple of sentences that you quote from him. Uh, this is uh, in Limits of the Known. David Roberts, he's quoting Friedrich Nansen. 
Um, Nutson says the limits of the unknown had to recede step by step before the ever-increasing yearning after light and knowledge of the human mind till they made a stand in the north at the threshold of nature's great ice temple of the polar regions and their endless silence. He goes on to write that the same thirst for achievement, the same craving to get beyond the limits of the known. So there's, there's the title of your book. Exactly. Yeah, he's, a, he's an idealist, a romantic, and yet there's so much sort of daily detail about what it's like to go on a journey like that. And he also has a great sense of humor. So, uh, you know, I, I found that today, it used to be that, quote, every schoolboy knew about nonsense. I think most of my readers had never heard of him before. And, uh, I'm just curious, had you heard about him? I had not heard about nonsense, no. Yeah. No. Uh, you know, Admiral Perry, uh, you know, a few other, you know, Shackleton, uh, some others. Right. Um had not heard, so I appreciated learning about him. Why do you think we've, we're losing knowledge of some of these great explorers? <laughs> Television. <laughs> Television, yeah. Uh, you know, media connection. Uh, I mean, every, every generation loses, loses a huge amount of history that's no longer part of the common education. But also, nonsense kind of adventure seems almost quaint. And one of the one of the really sad things is how a place like the North Pole can be trivialized. You can you can fly to the North Pole now and land on a in a plane and get out and have champagne and be awarded a certificate for having reached the North Pole. Where you can skydive over the North Pole, where you can get out one degree short of the North Pole and ski sixty-five miles, and have a champagne breakfast on on the North Pole and be flown back to Paris the next day or New York. So the place that Nansen would have given his life to reach has become just another stop on a tourist tour, and that's really sad and. Even tragic. Yeah, it does seem cheap, right? It's yeah. Cheapened experience. Um, so, uh, I want to have you talk a little bit. You write in the book about uh, technology, how technology has changed exploration, changed adventure, and not always for the for the best. Yeah, I've been. My book's been accused of being curmudgeonly, and indeed, I intended to be curmudgeonly because I think that. Two, two, two aspects of technology have completely changed the game of adventure. And they are uh, air flight, planes and helicopters, which not only allow getting places incredibly fast, but allow for rescue um, and all kinds of electronic connection, radio, GPS, um, sat phones, internet. Explorers who now go on these uh, cross-Antarctic journeys in which they're trying to set new records for the longest unsupported journey. And every single day, even hourly, they're in contact by radio or by sat phone with their support crew and even via the internet with 
school kids back in England or France or Norway or U.S. who are following their adventures, and it just it's, it changes the whole thing. It makes it not nearly as serious uh, a game. So that one of the one of the thrusts in my book is to try to find uh, forms of adventure today that are that do not suffer from all that connectedness, all that capacity for rescue. And I think caving is is a great example. You can't exactly get picked up in a heli- by a helicopter inside a cave if you fall and break your leg. Hmm. And connectedness doesn't work very well. They finally figured out how to string telephone lines down into caves, but uh, you, you can't you can't use radios or sat phones. And, and in fact, uh, I argue that caving is in, in its golden age now because in, in its time when every year hundreds of people stand on top of Mount Everest, we don't even know what the Mount Everest of caving is. We don't know where the deepest cave in the world is. We have the deepest known cave, which is a cave called Krubera in the Soviet former Soviet Republic of Georgia. But for all we know, there's a deeper cave that nobody's discovered yet. And I think cavers are are enjoying the kind of golden age of adventure that climbers did 60, 80 years ago and that Nansen did 130 years ago. So I guess if you were starting out, maybe maybe you'd go into caving. I actually say that in the book at one point. If I were starting out, I think that's that's a, a realm where everything is yet to be done, all the greatest discoveries. Hmm. And that's that's a driving force, right? To be to be the first, or yeah, yeah. And, and I I try to cross examine that in the book because to be the first is also quite selfish and quite sort of vainglorious and you know being the first was the the motive of all the <coughs> conquistadors who claimed land and subdued natives in the name of empire you know plant your foot on the summit of a peak and claim all the land in sight for yourself and for for the king of spain um but I do think that the essence of adventure is discovery of going someplace where nobody's been, not just for bragging rights, but because it's a profound experience to see something or to go somewhere where nobody's been. Mm. Very few of us have done that. And that that is an appeal, at least for, for certain people, including yourself, right? Um, let's take another break. Um, when we come back, I want to uh, talk about, we, you, you've uh, touched on a subject I want to explore a little deeper, and that is the fact that exploration has often been associated with colonialism, and there, there had often been, um, you know, bad effects. And there, there is one fascinating character in your book I, I definitely want to talk about, uh, Mick Leahy, who, uh, who discovered the highlands of Papua New Guinea. Uh, I want to talk about that and much more with... David Roberts, the new book is Limits of the Known, which is out, fascinating read. More following this break. 
We're talking on Access Utah today with David Roberts. Uh, his new book is Limits of the Known. And uh, he is author previously of uh, many books you may have read, Alone on the Ice, A Lost World of the Old Ones, many others. Um, and uh, Limits of the uh, Known, uh, David Roberts is asking some very important questions, including uh, our relationship to risk. What is the impulse, the why of adventure, of exploration? And uh, you're welcome to join the conversation here by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, or you can call us toll-free, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. So David Roberts uh, is fascinating, well, many fascinating characters in the book, uh, including yourself. Um, but uh, one stood out, um, Mick Leahy. This is in uh, Papua New Guinea. Um, it gets us into maybe a conversation about uh, the, the wake left behind an, an explorer, right? Yeah. Um, his name is actually pronounced Lay. L- Lay, okay. Mick Lay is how he pronounced it. Oh, okay. Thank you. That's okay. Mick Lay was a gold miner, a gold prosecutor who... Anderson. 
um, in which they, they went back 50 years later and actually met natives in their old age who had been children when, or even young men and women when Nicolay came through. And they recorded and filmed them remembering and juxtaposed this with the film footage and the photographs play is shot. And so you get the, the, the one of the, you get, I, I think, the only case in history of, of of first contact documented so thoroughly and so poignantly and ultimately so tragically. Mm. Oh, so check that out. I, I was not aware of that. Um, we talked earlier about technology. Maybe circle back to that. Uh, you write about a rafting expedition in New Guinea, your, your own expedition in New Guinea, uh, which you said turned out to be, according to you, a bargain with the cinematic devil. <laughs> yeah, I went along. I'm not a rafter. I was. I came along simply as a journalist. Uh, my friend Richard Bangs ran the expedition, and we were trying to... Uh, we were attempting a very serious first descent of a river called the uh, the Tua Parari. It changes its name three times, actually, going from the highlands to the sea. And it still hasn't been run completely today. And when we went there in the 80s, um, at the last minute, Richard decided to finance it by inviting the BBC to make a movie. And unfortunately, the BBC crew, who were essentially freaked out by the wilderness, completely changed the whole experience because they wanted to dictate from, as they hovered over us in helicopters and as they commuted from the motel in the highlands, they didn't even camp out with us. They decided to dictate the shape of the journey. So I wrote, a, I wrote an article for Outside called Rafting with the BBC, <laughs> which was essentially a satire of the complete corruption of adventure by the filmmakers. Uh, it was a cinematic devil. Mm-hmm. And yet during the days when we were allowed to go down, down river, it was all that you could ask from an adventure. Mm-hmm. We ended, pull, ended up pulling out by helicopter in the face of what would have been probably certain death rapids. And as I say, no one's run this river completely, even today, or even attempted to since we did. So there, there was some positive that came out of this. Um, oh, yeah. I yeah. mean, I, especially my own very furtive, brief contact with the natives along the shore, who, uh, you know, it's, you couldn't say by the 1980s that They'd never seen white people before, but they'd certainly seen very few white people. And as they gathered around and just sat staring at us, this happened to me also on a river trip in Ethiopia, also with Richard, uh, about a decade later. And those encounters, or almost encounters, are still, they still reverberate for me as among the more profound experiences in my life. Even though we, there was very little real understanding passed back and forth. Yeah, that must be a, a, a fascinating, mysterious divide as you look into each other's eyes. No kidding. I mean, nothing that we take for granted 
in the world, was part of their world. Uh, I had never been among people that unacculturated. And the, the, the mysteries that lie there that we only briefly glimpsed are, are you know, it's the stuff of, of great anthropologists like Margaret Mead and Malinowski who went into those cultures and lived and learned from them. One of the uh, you're fascinated, I know, by by ancient cultures, right? You've written, of course, about the Anasazi, mm-hmm. uh, closer here to home to, to Utah. Um, what is it about those those ancient peoples that that, that so fascinates you? Well, especially the Anasazi, and, and especially in southern Utah, which is the best place to find their ruins and rock art today. I mean, in the backcountry, unspoiled and unrestored. Um, we don't know the most basic things about the Anasazi. We have a, we've got 150 years of good anthropology, and we've figured out all kinds of things. But you take the central question of what's called the abandonment. We know that every single Anasazi, uh, and we're supposed to call them ancestral Puebloans today, but I just can't stand that phrase. <laughs> so I'll stick with Anasazi. Every single man, woman, and child, just before 1300 A.D., abandoned the Colorado Plateau, which is all of southern Utah and southwestern Colorado and northern Arizona and parts of New Mexico, and moved south and east. And we have some idea why, but not really. And so when you go into Grand Gulch today and near Bluff and Blanding in Utah. You're seeing a place that nobody's lived in for 700 years, and yet the ruins are there, still quite pristine because the the climate and the alcoves preserve them. And so the mystery is all there, right there, tangible in, 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 in your fingertips, so they shouldn't touch rock art or handle ruins, but... That that's become to me that's sort of replaced mountain climbing for me as the greatest passion in my life and in my later years. Just trying to figure out what they were doing and hiking down canyons where first few people have really checked out what's there. Interesting. It's it's, it's become your new, new latest passion. Are there connections with previous you know the mountain climbing etc. Or is it or, or is or is it uh, very new in a and, and different well, from one connection is that the, the Anasazi were great climbers. And you find, especially granaries, which are little tiny structures that are, were built to hold corn and beans and squash and preserve them in the most vertiginous, scary places, way up, 100 feet up, vertical cliffs. And even with modern climbing equipment, it's pretty hard to figure out how to get to them. Mm. Uh, you can repel to some of them, but you're not allowed to in certain places. Uh, we know the Anasazi didn't repel. But, so, I, yeah, I connect with these guys as climbers. But I also think that one way in which this adventure, to me, is deeper than climbing was, is that climbing is really just about yourself. 
It's about you and your buddies getting to the top of a mountain that nobody's been on. Whereas going into Anasazi country is about trying to figure out, figure them out, not just yourself. Mm. And you, you don't, you don't claim a ruin. You don't bag a ruin the way you bag a summit. You stand there and you, you, you're in awe of it and you try to figure it out. And so I think it's sort of a less self-centered form of adventure. And it's still a quest, right? You're still pushing the limits of, of you know, of the known, trying to, yeah, trying to solve and the mystery. Yeah, other places in the world, I, I talk at length about going to Mali in West Africa, where a vanished people called the Telem did even more extraordinary feats of climbing. And the Telem remain almost totally unexplained. Mm. Uh, and, you know, there are other places in the world where and there were vanished peoples did extraordinary things on cliffs that we haven't figured out. What, what were the what was the Telem's purpose for for climbing? They buried their dead in these in these alcoves, hmm. and also used them as granaries. Their crop was millet, not corn. But uh, they vanished about fifteen hundred A.D. And the people who live there today, the Dogon, who are quite interested in their own right, uh, tell various stories about the Telem. Telem is a Dogon word that means we found them. But as we went from village to village and asked the elders about the Telem, we got a different story in each village, insofar as we could get stories at all. Uh, through, through translating through French through Dogon. But, I mean, my God, that was a great adventure. Mm. Let's take another break. Uh, we'll come back with a final segment with David Roberts. Uh, you're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is uh, David uh, Roberts, and uh, the new book is Limits of the Known. More following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We've reached our last segment with uh, David Roberts. His latest book is Limits of the Known. You're welcome to join the conversation uh, one of two ways, by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, or by telephone, toll-free number 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. David Roberts, uh, what if you tell me about an, another fascinating explorer, um, Bill Stone. This is... Uh, uh, yeah, Bill Stone. Wonderful story. Is one of is maybe the most daring and innovative American caver, and he has been pushing caves in Mexico, uh, Huatla and Cheve, in hopes that he's discovered the deepest caves in the Western Hemisphere. They're not as deep as. Kubera in Georgia, the Soviet, former Soviet Republic, but they're really deep and they're fiendishly difficult because they they aren't simply vertical labyrinths of air, but they have what are called sumps, which are bodies of water interrupting the passages so that you rappel and downcline and traverse passages and tunnels only to suddenly come to what looks like a lake and you, and what stone did was to 
push the idea of combining scuba diving and caving. And he actually invented a thing called the rebreather so that you could take us you could take your own exhaled carbon dioxide and and the rebreather would convert it back into oxygen so that you could take a small enough tank to actually spend hours in these sumps hundreds, thousands of feet underground. Incredibly dangerous. People have died doing it. But Stone Stone is a very driven individual. I've only met him once, but I was impressed by how one of the most intense guys I've ever met. And his lifelong passion has been to try to find the deepest cave in the world, but he's also explored. He sort of pushed caving into new dimensions that nobody had ever dreamed of before. And then cave diving is, I think, the scariest thing going on right now. Mm. <laughs> I'm getting nervous just hearing about it. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, <laughs> yeah, I can't even swim, and I can't imagine cave diving. Yeah. Um, you mentioned he's an intense driven. That's how I imagine all explorers are. Is is that the case? Yeah, I think all, almost all the good ones are. You got to be pretty driven because it's also just something a little bit crazy about it, that kind of adventure that 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 you think it matters so much that you're willing to not only risk your life but risk losing a good job or not having a good job and. And, you know, devote all your energy and all your mental acuity into finding something nobody's found. Hmm. Just a couple minutes left with the, the, one of the purposes of the book, one of the, you know, the questions that you explore here, Limits of the Known. David Roberts is uh, making sense of the why, right? The why behind exploration, the why behind adventure. Do you, have you distilled that into a... You know, into a quote you could give us, or is it, or is it still? No, I don't think you can come up with a, a neat little, pithy little phrase that explains it. I, my whole book is an attempt to, to grapple with the question, and I think it's very much culture bound, so that, um, for other cultures, adventure would not have, might not even have any meaning. For instance, the Anasazi and the Talam did their climbing not not because of adventure, as far as we can tell, but for very pragmatic reasons, to hide their corn, to bury their dead. And I don't think they would have thought of it as an adventure. In fact, the, the, the very concept might be partly because life was so perilous anyway that the, the separation between adventure and normal life was not so clear-cut, you know, adventure may be the uh, the luxury of a relatively comfortable people in a comfortable age. Mm, yeah, yeah, good point. Uh, I wonder, you know, for for the average person, the 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 non-explorer, you know, but take myself. Um, what would you say about putting exploration and adventure into uh, in, into my life and our lives? Well, I think the one thing I tell my friends is don't sign up for a group trip. Go out and do something by yourself, even if it's very modest. Because the, the, one of the things I'm curmudgeonly about is what's called adventure travel, which is sort of a, 
appropriated the term adventure into what is essentially a packaged tourist offering so that, you know, you go bicycling in, in southern France, but every single decision is made by the group leaders. So my argument is simply just go out and do it yourself, even if it's not in southern France, even if it's in southern Utah. Just just get a map, put on your boots, go hiking. Mm, and yeah. like as not, you will have an adventure, and it'll be all your own. Yeah, yeah, good advice. Uh, so we've reached the end of our conversation. Uh, Dave Roberts, you're, uh, I guess the, you, you told us the... The, the next subject is the Dominguez-Escalante uh, retracing that expedition. Right. I'm halfway through writing that book and having a great time doing it. And it's, it's sort of a road trip book because you can do almost all the retracing by road. Mm-hmm. And Sharon and I spent 40 days doing that, very much hampered by my illness, by my cancer. Mm-hmm. But we still had a wonderful expedition and the whole thing has bounced off this amazing journey that happened 241 years ago. So yeah, part part of the the routes through Utah. So we'd be very interested in, in seeing that. Yeah, they discovered Utah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> very true. Well, David Roberts, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, and uh, good luck with anything, everything. Uh, we'll uh, keep your health in our prayers. Hope to hope for the best. Thank you, and it was a pleasurable hour for me and thanks for the good questions thank you very much david roberts the new book is limits of the known it's out now and uh, thank you for joining us today on the program and hope you join us uh, again tomorrow you've been listening to access utah thanks